This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to the first ever Rico Bronia. It's a Mets podcast named after personally my favorite New York Met of all time. Quite frankly, the greatest defensive first baseman in the history of baseball, Rico Bronia. Now, I know before anyone tells me Keith Hernandez or JT Snow or anyone else, this is my personal opinion from when I was 12 years old. The guy scooped it better than anybody. So we just figured we would honor a great Met on this Met-related podcast. My name is Evan Roberts. You can hear me Monday through Friday on the Carton and Roberts radio program. You can also hear my man Pete Hoffman as the producer of Tiki and Tini. Here's one of my fellow diehard Met fans. And basically, we'll come to you twice a week, usually after each series ends within, let's say, six hours after each series ends, and then occasionally mix in a instant reaction podcast. Now, we kick things off with what I think is the greatest split in the history of the New York Mets. At least, <laughs> at least that's my emotion, you know, a few hours after it ended. A four-game series against the Los Angeles Dodgers. I think a team we all agree is probably the team to beat in Major League Baseball. Don't tell a Yankee fan. They think they're the best team in baseball. And the way they lost the first two games, in which really the offense just sucked. And let's be honest. That's what happened. They got shut down by pretty good pitching. Who knew that Tyler Anderson would become a really good pitcher? But they got shut down through two games. And to come back and win the way they did Saturday night where they're down early, and the way they won this finale was scintillating slash shocking slash awesome. It was, quite frankly, the greatest split in the history of this New York Mets team. Now, we'll go through each game. Uh, we'll analyze where this team is as they continue their West Coast trip against the San Diego Padres. But let's start off with what I think is the one negative that came out of this four-game series against the Dodgers, and that's SNY. How is Gary Cohen calling every pitch a half a second before we watch it? Can we address that issue? Because this was going on all freaking weekend. And at first, here's really what I thought on Thursday night. And I never brought it up. I never mentioned it on Friday. I didn't even mention it to anybody I knew on Saturday. It really didn't hit me until late Saturday night. I thought Gary Cohen was just so on top of the action that he was calling a curveball as it was being thrown. He was calling a swing by the a swing and the miss as it was being swung and missed. It was it was really the opposite of John Sterling where John will wait 5 seconds before making a call. I just thought Gary Cohen was locked in. I thought he saw this was a big series and kind of said, "I'm going to give you the best of Gary Cohen." But by the time it was Saturday night and it was about 12:15, there was one call he made where I said, "Wait a second." Well, hold on, hold on a second. <laughs> what the hell is happening? And then throughout this game on Sunday, the finale of this series, it was happening all the time to the point where when Adonis Medina, our favorite Adonis, he is quite a freaking Adonis. What a balls he has getting these three outs with a runner on second with the Fugazi Manfred rule. But anyhow, as Medina got Will Smith out, Gary's calling it before we saw it. So look, if this is going to be our biggest issue, this is the definition of a first world problem. But as a man of the people, we need to address something I'm sure every person's thinking about. Gary Cohn either had telepathy or SNY's video signal was a half a second behind the audio call. Now, Hoffman, be honest with me. At what point in this four-game series did it hit you like a ton of bricks that Gary was calling the action a split second before we saw it? The final call with Will Smith, because I was like, what just happened? How did he call it beforehand? Like, I, that was amazing. I had no idea that that happened all season long. Listen, I've been watching on TV, but I've been doing other things, so I didn't focus on as much as that. That's been going on all series long? All series long. And 
like in fairness, when it happened on Thursday and Friday, like it would flick into my mind of, oh, he's making a call slightly early, but I really genuinely thought he was just locked in. Like he was just really paying attention so well that he was able to call it almost as it was happening or before it was happening. But it became obvious over the last two days, and I fully get it. You know, when you're watching, especially West Coast games, where, and I know you, Pete, this is what I respect about you. I saw you tweeting at 1230. Like, you're you're watching these games, and you're not falling asleep at 1130 and watching highlights. But even so, when you're staying up late, our brain doesn't work maybe as the way it would if it was 830 at night. So I get that it took a while. It took me two games into this series. It took you until the final batter, but it was... It was like, what the hell's going on? It was it was amazing. And you're right, because I thought like, you know, sometimes like when I'm watching a game, you call it like, oh, it's safe, it's safe. You want to like throw it out there that he got right. it. But no, that he literally has been a step ahead the whole time. It was the whole time. Insane. That's amazing. It it was amazing. All right, let's go to the first <laughs> let's go to the first game of this series. We'll work our way to what was the scintillating finale. Again, the greatest split in the history of the New York Mets. Unless you have one that you're thinking about, you can at me, at Evan Roberts, WFAN. I guess I'd have to go through every four-game series and two-game series over really the last 35 years to find the split that was as satisfying and as scintillating. But, but here's why it was satisfying. Go back to game one of this series, and I'm whipping out my scorebook. This is why I score games, because it jogs memories. Because for most people listening, game one of this series feels like six months ago. Like, you barely remember how this thing started. So let me refresh your memory. Tony Gonsolin is the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. Tony Gonsolin is just mowing down the New York Mets. And what was frustrating about this opener, not panic-worthy. I want to make something clear. I never really felt panic throughout this four-game series because it's four games of 162. I never looked whether they won this series, and even though the split felt like a win, it's like Rocky, Rocky 1 or Rocky 2, whichever one where he... I think he lost in Rocky one, but oh, sometimes you lose and you win. Wait a second. That was white men can't jump. Either way, it has nothing to do with winning or losing. Here's my focus as a Met fan. Win the National League East and finish with a top two record. Beating the L.A. Dodgers and proving you're a good team is the most overrated thing you're going to hear people talk about. It doesn't mean anything. Like beating the Dodgers... Uh, five out of seven times or four to seven times or all seven times means zilch. It means, can I curse? Am I allowed to curse on this podcast off? Of course you can. It means shit, all right? It doesn't mean anything. And here's the reason why. In 2015, the New York Mets were 0-7 against the Chicago Cubs. 0-7. They swept them in the National League Championship Series. For our older Mets fans, we know about 1988. The Dodgers got dominated by the Mets during the regular season, and then we, we saw what happened in the postseason. The point is, beating a team you may face later in the postseason doesn't mean anything. All that matters right now, if you're a New York Mets fan, is winning the National League East and finishing with a top-two record. So anyone who says, oh, they got to prove they can hang with the Dodgers, they don't have to prove anything. I mean, seriously, in 2015, they couldn't beat good teams. And then guess what happened when the playoffs came? They beat the Dodgers and they beat the Cubs. So I want to make that clear that before we go into these games, I was never looking at winning as, oh, they got to prove they belong. No, they got to win the division. They got to make the playoffs. Yeah. And then they need a bye out of that Fugazi wildcard round. That's my focus. That will be my focus whenever we talk on this podcast for the next three months. Because that's it. That's the only goal. Division, top two record. But it was frustrating watching this offense, which had dominated the Nationals and really has clicked all year. I mean, there's a reason they came into the series averaging 5.2 runs per game. This has been a relentless offense. This has been an offense that kind of reminds me of the Royals of 2015, where they just give you these long at-bats and they're going to wear you down. And they're not going to strike out that much. And they're just going to eventually get to you. And there may not be necessarily a guy or two that scares you half to death. Though I think Pete Alonso is starting to have that kind of season. It's just a very, very deep lineup. So to see Tony Gonsolin and then that bullpen, Bruce Dar Grotterall and uh, the, the, what's his name? Uh, Daniel Hudson and Craig Kimbrell just completely shut this offense down. was frustrating because I think we're almost watching this first game waiting for the rally. Because we've grown accustomed to that. The Mets have done such a good job of 
coming back when they're trailing in games and at least scoring. I mean, they hadn't been shut out until the opener of this series. It was the first time they were shut out all season long. But I think we had become spoiled to watching this offense eventually click. And it just never happened in the first game of this series. And obviously the other negative thing, which I know worried me, I'm not sure it worried Pete as much, was the Lindor story. Because remember, he didn't play in this opener because he supposedly slammed his fingers on a hotel door right after he got a massage, which I don't even know why he added that, which made me think he was full of crap. Like anybody who tells a story and starts adding stuff to the story, it's like, well, why, why are you telling me about that? You're probably lying. And with all due respect to Lindor, who's had a very good year, he really has he had a very good year. He's basically gets an RBI every single game. Lindor doesn't come across that truthful because he's the one who told us that him and Jeff McNeil were arguing about which animal they saw when, in fact, Lindor choked Jeff McNeil. I guess, don't we all know that story now? That McNeil didn't want to shift. Lindor basically said, I know more baseball than you. And then finally, they're in the locker room and Lindor's choking him. So, again, this is not a knock on Francisco. I, I'm just giving you the facts. Why should I believe him when he says his hand gets slammed on by a door when he's telling us about an argument between a raccoon and a squirrel? Remember that? So, I'm sorry. I never believed Lindor. But I did get nervous that this story, this Fugazi I'm sorry I got my hand slammed by a hotel door story was sort of going to lead to like a downfall of this team. (laughs) I did worry about that, that this would be the Sam Darnold icy ghost game all over again. But what did make me feel good is the fact he was in the lineup the very next game. And even though he didn't do anything, he didn't have a big game. I think that was the game that stopped his RBI streak. There was at least a, okay, he's fine. Okay, he's not going on the injured list. All right, he should be okay. But that you coincide that story with the fact that the Met offense completely got shut down, not that it was because his bat wasn't in the lineup, just for the first time this season, it felt like the mojo was different than it had been. So I'm not telling you it was full set, full stage panic, but there was a little worry of, really? This is what we're starting off with? Uh, the, the Max Scherzer thing, I'll just get this out of the way. That really was a non-story. And I don't even know how it came out that Max Scherzer got bit by his dog. This doesn't even feel real as I'm saying it. But Max Scherzer was bit by his dog and had to miss a side session. And then Scherzer had to give us a press release, essentially, in which he said, yeah, I got bit by my dog. I missed one side session. I'm good. Non-story. So I don't know what the hell's going on. That was a little worrisome. And then game two of this series... Chris Bassett gets, you know, hit early by that Cody Bellinger two-run bomb. He gives up a home run to Zach McKinstry. And again, they can't figure out Tyler Anderson. And they're just getting mowed down. So really until the Alonzo home run in game two, you sit there from 10-10 at night to 1 o'clock in the morning if you're a diehard Met fan and you're watching an offense that you didn't recognize. This was not the offense we had watched all season long. You know, Brandon Nimmo looked real bad as he came back off his little respite. I don't know what was going on. He did break out of it later in the series. It was just, it was tough to watch. And I, look, I don't even blame Chris Bassett because while Chris Bassett wasn't great in this game, he did give them that extra inning, which I think helps, especially when you saw how much the Mets used of their bullpen over the next two days. The fact he was able to squeeze out an extra inning, a sixth inning of work, and ended up throwing 110 pitches, it wasn't a great performance. But here's the truth. If you're going to score one run in nine innings against the Dodgers, and that's after you got completely shut out. So let's do the math. You scored one run in 18 innings. You're not winning. So I don't even look at the Bassett start and necessarily kill him for it. It was just that this offense got shut down. And they got shut down by two guys in Tony Gonsolin and Tyler Anderson who've had outstanding seasons. I know full well with Gonsolin. He's on my fantasy team. I did not enjoy anything about him shutting down the Mets. I'm just letting you know I, I know how well he's pitched. I, I give him a lot of credit. Tyler Anderson, the same thing. The guy's like 7-0 and with a 2 ERA. But this was very unfamiliar. And let's be honest. It started to feel like this was going to be a four-game sweep at the hands of the L.A. Dodgers. It did. And that doesn't mean I was giving up on the team or this team's going to collapse or it's just like last year. I'm not saying any of that. It just felt like 
we were looking at a four-game losing streak. Everything about these first two games kind of pointed that way. And then, and let this be a lesson, never go nuts about what the starting pitching matchups are in a particular game. Uh, now that I've looked at FanDuel every day, that's really how they base their money lines and who's favored. And I get it. No, better starting pitcher on the mound. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Their favorite to win. I totally get that. But when you looked at the pitching matchups for the final two games of this series, you saw. So let's go back to Friday night. All right. Game's over. Mets have lost back to back games against the Dodgers. They've scored one run in two games. Chris Bassett gave up a bunch of home runs to the L.A. Dodgers, the best offense in baseball. And now the Mets are facing Walker Bueller versus David Peterson. Think about that. Walker Bueller versus David Peterson and Julio Urias versus Trevor Williams. That's what we're staring at. So let's all be fair now that we know the result. We were, oh, no, I was confident. Okay. When you're sitting there at 1 o'clock in the morning, late Friday night, Saturday morning, the Mets have scored one run in two games. You're facing the best offense in the National League. Chris Bassett just gave up a couple of home runs. He gave up three home runs to the Dodger offense. And that's with Freddie Freeman not even killing you. Let's think about that. Freddie Freeman had been quiet in this series. And you're looking at Bueller, Urias, probably their two best starting pitchers. Clayton Kershaw, okay, when he pitches. That guy makes 15 starts a year. I know who am I to make that comment when we've got Jacob DeGrom on our team. But you know what I mean? I've got great respect for Clayton Kershaw, but... If you look at the last couple of years, Walker Bueller, Walker Bueller and Julio Urias are the two best starting pitchers. I think that's a fair comment to make. And we're looking at them over the final two games of this series. And let's take it a step further. All right? We get to Saturday night. Lindor hits that home run off Bueller. Okay, great. Right, that's nice. And then we watch David Peterson not helped out by the bad throw by Pete Alonzo when he's trying to turn a double play in the second inning. We watched David Peterson give back four runs to the Dodgers, and I know it's not all on him because of the bad defense, but when he falls behind Mookie Betts 2-0 and the bases are loaded, but the bases loaded, there were a couple of guys on base. We all knew what the result was going to be, something really, really bad, and Betts hits that bases clearing double, and it's 4-1. to one. You think the Mets are winning that game? Is anybody listening right now, let's be honest, even the most optimistic fan, as much as they have fought back this year, they've lost the first two games of this series, okay? They've now scored two runs in uh, 20 innings, okay? The Lindor home run, which was hit in the first inning of this game, and the Alonzo home run from game two. And now we've witnessed David Peterson, who's probably not that good to begin with. He couldn't get through the fifth inning of that game against the Nationals last week. Proceed to give back four runs, helped out by shoddy defense by Pete Alonzo. Four to one, third inning. They've lost the first two games of this series. What are you thinking? I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Our asses are getting swept. That's what I'm thinking. And that's not being negative. That's being realistic. But. In the third inning on Saturday night, the New York effing Mets reminded you what the 2022 New York effing Mets are all about because they immediately responded against Walker Bueller. Now, granted, we can say this now, Walker Bueller had a very off performance. He would not even finish that said third inning. When he walks Patrick Mazika to lead off the third inning, that's a pretty good sign. When Brandon Nimmo does Brandon Nimmo things, again, even though he hadn't looked great at the plate, he can still draw a walk occasionally, and that's what he did. And then Starling Marte comes through with the big RBI hit, and then Francisco Lindor did something, which we saw continue in the finale of this series, and something that I wish they created a stat to describe. Because for all the new age stats that we have that usually mean very little, there's one stat that they haven't produced yet for us. And that's the productive out. 
because Francisco Lindor at that point, I remember saying it with nobody out, hit the freaking ball, advance the runner, score a run. And that's what he did. Now, I don't want to jump ahead to game four of this series, but we know what J.D. Davis did. That was a productive out. And I don't know if they've done that yet. Have they created a stat? Have I missed that stat that they created that really measures so. the productive out? That's not, that's not around just yet, but we'll start that. I promise you. Me I you, mean, I don't know how to measure it because I know all situations are different. Like, I'll give you a great example. If it's eight to nothing in the eighth inning and someone hits the ball to the right side to advance the runner, that's not a productive out because you're down eight nothing. Like, I get that. Not all situations are created equal. But in the third inning of this game, in which you're trying to get back runs that you just gave up, I wasn't expecting to take the lead. I was just saying, go scratch out two or three runs. That's it. That's all I was looking for. And Lindor hitting that ground ball to the right side of the infield. Man, that's my turn on. I'm telling you right now. that, And that's the thing I got to give Lindor credit for. And J.D. Davis did it in the finale of this series. That's what I want from this team. And they've been doing it all year. Productive outs. This is why, not to go on a diatribe, but I probably will. This is why when I hear, ah, the team strikes out a lot, who cares? That's the stupidest thing ever. When you strike out, that's it. You're out. It's over. When you ground out or you fly out, there's a chance, not always, that the out's productive. God damn it. That's why the Houston Astros have been so successful the last bunch of years. It's not only stealing signs. It's not only Justin Verlander. It's not only great players like Carlos Correa and Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman. It's that they're very difficult to strike out. If Francisco Lindor strikes out in that spot, and I know that's not the greatest example because Pete Alonso then hit a two-run home run on the, uh, in the next at-bat, but you know, in general, if he had struck out and not driven in a run, which he did, he drove in Brandon Nimmo, and advanced Starling Marte to third base, you know, that inning could have been different. Obviously, Pete Alonso is a monster right now and loves hitting at Dodger Stadium. He is such a beast. And he hit that two-run home run to knock Bueller out of the game. But that's where everything changed in this series. Because two runs in 20 innings, you're staring Walker Bueller in the eye, you're trailing game three of this series, four to one in the third inning, and everything changed. Not only did David Peterson at least give you another inning and a half, but then we saw Buck Showalter do Buck things. And, you know, it's funny. When the Mets hired Buck Showalter, I I was very happy about it. But I wasn't, I guess, as happy as others, like our boy Sal Licata, who was wishing everybody a happy Buckmas. I remember saying to Sal, look, I love the Buck hire. I'm good with it. But I I, I think you're overstating maybe the impact that a manager can have. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, on June 4th and 5th, 2022, my love for Buck Showalter became so firm and so strong. There were a few things Buck, and Buck's had a great year. I mean, this is I, I know this is nothing new. Uh, when you talk about the locker room and things that you can't measure, obviously the success this team has had. First of all, he has the media handled. I mean, he plays them like a flute. It's unbelievable. He gives you nothing and yet has the media and fans fawning all over everything he says. More on that later. But there is the thing that Buck did. David Peterson throws that hanger to Mookie. And Mookie rips this foul ball. And I'm telling you out loud, I said, get him out of the effing game. And I wasn't the only one. Everybody who was up Saturday night when David Peterson gave up that foul ball to Mookie, said, get him out of the effing game. The guy's already thrown 90 pitches. (laughs) He's not going much further. You're going to need a lot of outs out of your bullpen. Get him out of the game. I mean, you just scored a bunch of runs. You just took the lead. At this point, it's 6-4 to because the Mets tacked on another run in the fourth inning when my boy Eduardo Escobar hit a home run. And as the words are coming out of my mouth, get him out of the effing game, I see that sexy man get out of the dugout. I mean, he is the sexiest 60-plus-year-old man in the world. He comes out of that dugout. He starts going towards the mound. And I'm like, Buck, you read my freaking mind. Now, obviously, what makes it work is that Colin Holderman strikes out Mookie Betts, freezes him. Mookie Betts looked like he had never seen that pitch before. It was beautiful. But I love that move. 
And then the bullpen. The bullpen. Give him credit. Adam Ottavino, who 90% of the time we all hate. Jason Shreve. Drew Smith. Big J. Jolie Rodriguez. And even Seth Lugo. Shut the L.A. Dodger offense down. So after they give up the four runs in the second inning, the Dodgers do absolutely nothing. And then we even get to be entertained by my cousin, who I've got to text. i got to talk to my cousin Dave. Dave Roberts has no effing idea what the hell is going on. Dave Roberts says to himself, ah, it's a five-run game. Let me go to Zach McKinstry, who's not a pitcher, obviously. He's a position player. Let me go to Zach McKinstry just to get three outs. Meanwhile, my cousin had Craig Kimbrell warming up in the bullpen. He did. He had him warming up. I have no idea why he was warming up. What the hell changed in the ninth inning? Nothing. Was he just getting working? Like, why was he warming up? See, he has this idea of, and before we get to the rule and who knew the rule, let's just think about this for a second. Dave, you have a million arms out of the bullpen. You just got brilliant starting pitching out of Tyler Anderson and Tony Gonsolin. Now, Walker Bueller sucked. We all know that. You really think in a five-run game with the best offense in baseball, this is the time to go to a position player because you just want to give up? Now, look, I get it. The odds of you coming back from five down seem to be really slim because you're facing the unbeatable Seth Lugo (laughs) because Edwin Diaz has never imploded west of the Rocky Mountains. Like, I get the odds aren't very high, but I'll tell you right now, if I'm a Dodger fan, and I I know it's tough to imagine being a Dodger fan because they won a World Series a few years ago. I know nothing about winning, but I'm going to try to put myself in these shoes. I'd be pissed off at Dave Roberts. I'd say, dude, what are you doing? It's a five-run game. Yeah, I get it. The odds are we're not going to come back, but we got the best offense in baseball. We get a couple of guys on base. Freaking Trey Turner may come up as the tying run, who, by the way, has like a 57,000-game hitting streak. I think it was 25 games or 26 games. Whatever it was, it got snapped. <laughs> That's what I know. But so let's just start there before we get to the rule. Dave, what are you doing? So then, and I do, I'll be perfectly honest with you, as much of a baseball geek as I am, here's what I knew about the rule. I, I always want to be honest with second guessing and first guessing and always say this is what I thought at the time. I forgot that they added this rule. I remember they were going to add it before the 2020 season. Obviously, the pandemic hit and they changed everything. But they had created a rule because too many position players had come into pitch. And so the rule was we really don't want position players to come into pitch unless it's a blowout or it's an extra inning game and you really don't have another choice. I completely forgot that this rule, A, got pushed back, and then B, that they were now instituting it. But, but here's the thing. I'm not the manager of the L.A. Dodgers. I'm a guy who scores a bunch of baseball games and screams about it on the radio. So it's okay for me to admit, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember them coming up with this rule, but I'm not sure if it's instituted or not. Dave Roberts, who I I don't want to rip Dave. I like Dave. I really do. He gave us as Met fans something really, really important that we should cherish every day. Do you know what he gave us, Pete? I, I don't. What did <laughs> he give us? What did he give us? He gave us the New York Yankees collapse of 2004. Because without that stolen base, I'm not sure it ever happens. So, Dave, I will forever be grateful for the greatest sports collapse in the history of everything. Thank you, Dave. With that said, Buck comes out there, and I think all of us want to believe the story. And this isn't true, but this is what we all want to believe. I even tweeted it. We want to believe that Buck Showalter walked out and said, hey, morons, he's not allowed to go to a position player because there's a rule, and I'm Buck Showalter, and I know every freaking rule in the world, which I believe he does. And then the umpires went like, what? There's a rule? Let's, let's call New York City to find out. So I think we all want to believe that Buck created this on his own. I watched Buck's post-game press conference. A, I don't think he wanted to talk about it. And B, like I mentioned earlier, he doesn't say much. And yet, the media and us as fans, we love him. It doesn't even matter that he doesn't say much. 
but he kind of gave me the impression, you know, uh, this is my buck imitation. Here we go. Um, yeah, so the uh, the umpire said we want to check on the rule. Yeah, I had nothing to do with it. I don't know. I'm just hanging out. He made it seem as if he really didn't push the whole, hey, this guy can't come into pitch. That the umpire has almost said, hey, I don't think he can come into pitch. Let's go double check. And he took the high road on the thing Gary Cohen was freaking out about, which is why should Evan Phillips, who ended up coming into the game, be allowed an unlimited amount of time to warm up? And Buck's high road was, well, we don't want him to get hurt, and we certainly don't want him to hurt one of our guys. We know how many times the Mets have been hit. So it was it was weird because I, I don't know what the right answer is because Buck's right. Let's think about this. As much as Dave Roberts is stupid or stupid's too strong, much as Dave Roberts should have known the rule and there should be a penalty for it, such as the pitcher doesn't get as much time as he wants to throw up, throw to warm up, there is a negative that could affect the Mets, which is the guy could start drilling people and injuring people because he's not warmed up. So the whole thing was bizarre, and then it creates this interesting dilemma, which Steve Gelbs brought up on the broadcast on Sunday, and I'm glad it was finally discussed, which is, wait a second, in the moment as a Met fan, don't you want the position player to come into pitch? Don't you want McKinstry to come in, probably give up a couple of runs, and so that it's definitely game over? Because with a five-run lead, as I've said earlier, not to be sarcastic, we've seen the Mets blow leads. We've seen the Mets come back a lot this season, but certainly in the past. I'm not going to put it as much on this current 2022 team, but you go back to 2019, that's the kind of game the Mets lose. Like, think about the way the Mets lost games in 2019. Wouldn't it have been fitting for five-run lead in the ninth, position players trying to come into pitch to give up on game, umpires say you're not allowed, regular pitcher gets three outs, Mets blow the lead in the ninth inning? Like, that would have been... Such a Metsian 2019 loss. But what Gary Cohen said, and I kind of agree that Buck would have thought this way because I think he's got confidence. No, I want them to burn a relief pitcher because that's going to hurt them on Sunday. In the moment of Saturday, yeah, let McKinstry come in. Let the Mets ensure they win the Saturday game. But in the whole context of baseball's a marathon and game four of the series is tomorrow, yeah, let's make them waste using one of their better starting pitchers. And here's what's beautiful about the whole thing. That could have been the reason why the Mets won the fourth game of this series. Think about this. Evan Phillips comes in in the sixth inning. Evan Phillips, same guy. He gets two outs, including striking out Escobar with two on and two out. Then he comes out of the game. If Evan Phillips doesn't pitch that game on Saturday night, he may pitch the seventh inning. Maybe that pushes back how they use their bullpen. Now, obviously, the Mets ended up getting to Bruce Dargata raw in the eighth inning. More on that in a second. But I think the long game approach is let's make them use a regular pitcher. Either way, it was a great victory on Saturday night. The offense woke up. And all of a sudden, you look at this series a little bit differently. And I went into the Sunday game, again, another pitching matchup that heavily favored the L.A. Dodgers, with the thought being, you know what? No matter what happens in this finale, they got to win. You lose three out of four, okay, not the ultimate goal, but you avoid disaster. You avoid the disaster of losing all four games. That was my approach. Now, one other thing about the Saturday game before I jump to the finale of this series, the Jeff McNeil thing was really, really weird. Jeff McNeil struck out to end the ninth inning and was upset. He pulled a Paul O'Neill, as I like to call it. And when Paul O'Neill used to do it, Yankee fans affectionately loved it. Oh, he's showing emotion. He's the warrior. He's Paul O'Neill. When Jeff McNeil does it and he's struggling, not this year because he's had a good year, but certainly last year, you look at him and say he's a whiny baby. He's got to grow up. Paul O'Neill was a whiny baby. The difference was Paul O'Neill was a great player. And so we looked at his whiny babiness and said, that's great. That's what makes him fantastic. He is so into the game. He cares about it so much. But really, it depends who you are and how you perform. And that's how we view it. So to me, when I saw Jeff McNeil slam his helmet down, I didn't think much of it. He was struggling. It looked like he was in a batting slump, maybe one of his first real slumps of the season. Anytime Jeff McNeil is striking out, there's something to worry about. 
But you see that clip of Buck kind of giving him the finger, not that finger, but the finger of get over here. You know, like you see, like you do to your kid, get over here. What are you doing? I did that to Jet numerous times today. Not as much Spence because he's only a year and a half year old, but that finger of get, get the hell over here. What are you doing? And so it looked like Buck benched him. And after the game, SNY, who had a really bad weekend, I don't really work for SNY. They air our show. But I got to tell you, if I had any pull with SNY, they got a D minus for the week. Not only are they delaying the Gary Cohen video feed like we discussed earlier in the podcast, but here's the other thing they did. If you watch the post game, and I'm a big post game watcher because I like to hear what the managers have to say specifically. As he's being asked about pulling Jeff McNeil, they cut away. I kid you not. This is the kind of crap I see. And so I was very upset with SNY. I did a little research, and I was able to see what Buck's answer was. And his answer was, I just thought he needed to spend the ninth inning with me or the ninth inning on the bench. Like, he basically confirmed that he pulled him. Now, I'd love to go further into that with him and say, what's the issue? Like, was he too personal? Because emotion's good in baseball. Sometimes it is. And then he doesn't play him in the game on Sunday. Now, you could easily argue, well, you didn't play him because Urias was on the mound. It was a matchup thing. Jeff McNeil doesn't play every every single day anyway. And I buy that. But I'd love to find out more about what Buck thinks about Jeff McNeil's overreaction at times to at-bats. Because, yeah, he freaked out. And what's weird is he freaked out in a situation in which the Mets had scored nine runs. They're about to win a baseball game. And maybe you look at it and say, is Jeff more concerned about the fact he struck out his last three at-bats and not the fact that even though he didn't have a good day, the rest of the offense had a good day? I don't know. I don't know if teammates look at it that way. Maybe some teammates look at him and say, what a bitch. This guy's complaining about striking out three times. We just scored nine runs against the L.A. Dodgers. We just sent Walker Bueller to the showers in the freaking third inning. And this guy's complaining? I don't know. But I trust Buck. We all have to trust Buck. But we haven't even gotten to the best thing Buck Showalter did all weekend long, and that was in the finale of this series. Game four. Mets-Dodgers. Again, I'm such a loser that I go into this finale thinking, ah, yeah, we win the game, great. Expect to lose, but hey, we got to win in this series. It's not the end of the world. It's Trevor Williams. Tyler McGill made a rehab start. He should be back in a week and a half. It's all good. Trey Turner hits that home run in the first inning. Pete Hoffman's excited because Trey's on his fantasy team. Be honest. Were you excited about that? Uh, Listen, I wasn't upset by it. But yeah, it was fun. I, but you nailed it, though. Like, dude, I expected once once I took the game on Saturday, I was fine. I was content with the fact that at least they didn't get swept. So I was like, okay, whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. That's the worst mentality. But we all have it, or at least a lot of us have it. Of all right, well, we got a game. But then, as this game goes on, you start to become that fat kid that wants cake, you know? Because Trevor Williams, to his credit, and I give him a lot of credit, settled in. And pitched really well. He makes one mistake to Trey Turner. He gives up a leadoff double in the second inning to Cody Bellinger. Fights through it. And ends up giving this team five quality innings. The problem is, outside of the home run by Starling Marte, this game was about missed opportunities against Urias. Two on, nobody out in the second inning. They do nothing. Escobar strikes out. Guillerme pops up. And then Brandon Nimmo comes up with the bases loaded. Flies out to center field. They got another opportunity in the sixth inning. They even get Urias out of the game. I mentioned earlier, Evan Phillips is used, but Dave Roberts pulls him after only getting two outs. Then he goes to Caleb Ferguson. Again, the Mets have another opportunity after poor Brandon Nimmo gets drilled on his wrist and Starling Marte strikes out. And then the eighth inning. Two to one. This team has done a great job of keeping it close. Adovino pitches well. Nagosic pitches well. And the eighth inning comes, and Francisco Lindor, who, again, got to give this guy credit. Guy's had a great year. I'm I'm thrilled. I'm still skeptical about him. I haven't fully, fully embraced him. But he's had a very, very good season. And he's had these moments. And that leadoff double in the eighth inning is a moment. And here's why. Because with this kind of offense where they have productive outs, where they've been getting sacrifice flies, you get a runner on second, nobody out with this offense, unlike last year or 2020, there's a confidence they're going to get that run across. 
which they did. And they did because Pete Alonso is a beast. Pete Alonso is the MVP of this team this season. I'm not saying he's the MVP of the league. I'm not going to sit here breaking down numbers and comparing him and Mookie Betts and anyone else. But I could tell you as somebody that has watched every inning of this team this season, the MVP of the New York Mets through 56 games is Pete Alonso. Because he's got 54 RBIs in 56 games. And some of them have been huge, huge hits. Especially that walk-off against the Cardinals a few weeks ago. But first pitch, Brewster Gratterall had no effing idea what was coming. He rips an RBI double. And then, back to something I said earlier, productive outs. Nothing turns me on more than Buck Showalter and productive outs. And J.D. Davis, and this is what I love about this team. J.D. Davis, first pitch, ground ball to second, right? Amazing. Unbelievably productive. Alonzo goes to third, lead run. J.D. Davis is running down the line, Kirk Gibson style, pumping his fist. Meanwhile, he grounded out to second base. Doesn't help his OPS, but he knows. He gets it. This team gets it. It's like J.D. Davis walked up there and said, look, here's what's going to happen against Bruce Dorr Gratterall. I'm either getting a base hit to right field or I'm going to ground out towards the right side. Whatever I do, if it's a, if it's a game-winning hit, fantastic. He'd do that later. <laughs> we didn't know that at the time. He'd do that later. Game-winning hit. But I am finding a way to move Pete Alonzo's beautiful, chunky ass to third base. And he did. And then Marcana falls behind, gets hit by a pitch. And then how about the at-bat by Eduardo Escobar? Eduardo Escobar is not fully out of it yet. You know, he's still slumping. He's still causing you to be frustrated, like in the second inning when he's striking out with two on and nobody out. But in that at-bat, he knew, I gotta, I gotta give us the lead. I gotta find a way to hit the ball to the outfield. And off the bat, I actually thought it was gone. But a 10-pitch at-bat, this is what I'm talking about with this team. Whether it's Brandon Nimmo or Mark Canna, Eduardo Escobar gives you that marathon 10-pitch at-bat, hits the ball to deep right field, sacrifice fly, the Mets took the lead. And if you didn't see my tweet, I've been thinking about this for three weeks. I was waiting for this moment. Because about three weeks ago, I said to myself, boy, you know what's different about this Mets offense? They got a crap load more sacrifice flies than they ever had. So I see where they're at. I'm like, oh, they got 18 sacrifice lives, wherever they were about a week and a half ago. I wonder how many they had last year. I go to baseballreference.com. I almost fell off my chair. The New York Mets were not only dead last in sacrifice flies last year. They had 23 the entire season. 23? What that? 23? And as I looked at this, I knew. The moment they get their 23rd sacrifice fly, I can't wait. I'm going to go on Twitter. I don't care where I am. I don't care how behind in the game I am because I DVR'd it. And I'm going to tweet proudly, the New York Mets have just matched their sacrifice fly total from last year. And little did I know that that moment would be a pretty cool moment. A moment in the eighth inning that gives you the lead against the LA Dodgers in a game that felt that was lost. And here's the underrated thing about this game, a game they end up winning, obviously. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know the result, I don't know what the hell's wrong with you. You probably saw the name Rico Brony and thought it was something else. But Tomas Nito. Tomas Nito. I love the way Buck has not made a everyday catcher. Like, keep platooning Mazika and Nito. But James McCann, when he comes back, he better wake up. Because Tomas Nito, despite, you know, a 250 batting average, is money. You almost trust Tomas Nito. Tomas Nito almost maybe in that circle of, hey, in a big spot, I don't mind them coming up. He comes through with a huge RBI single that you knew against this Dodger offense they were going to absolutely need. But let's get to the thing Buck Showalter did that almost made me drop my pants. That may be a little bit too much. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm having fun. I'm on a high. No, no, seriously. I was thinking of dropping my pants. I see Edwin Diaz warming up. I have been, as a fan, screaming about this for many, many years, which is I understand guys having to find roles. But if the best hitters are coming up in an inning that's not the ninth inning, 
why wouldn't you use your best reliever? Sometimes it's very basic. Like, if I have a lockdown closer, and to Edwin Diaz's credit, he has been very good this year. Yes, there have been moments that have caused us to say, I don't trust him. He's the best reliever on the New York Mets. You trust him more than Seth Lugo. You trust him more than Drew Smith. You trust him more than Adam Adovino. I don't think there's any doubt. Edwin Diaz is the best reliever on this team in this moment. But if you're going to face better hitters in the seventh or eighth inning, why not use that better pitcher in that inning? So Buck Showalter, maybe one night he couldn't sleep and he was listening to a replay of my Saturday show. No, I'm just kidding. I have screamed about this forever. And Buck in the eighth inning of a two-run game with Betts, Freeman, and Turner coming up, not even close, the Dodgers' three best hitters. Not even close. Those are the three guys that scare you. All three of them, two of them are certifiable med killers. Trey Turner and Freddie Freeman have destroyed the New York Mets from their times in the NL East, as we all know. And Mookie Betts is just a great player. He's just a great player. And he decides to go to Edwin Diaz in the eighth inning. And I, I love it. I love it. And I made a commitment to myself and to you. Even if Edwin Diaz imploded, even if Seth Lugo imploded, we'll get to that, this was still a great move. Sometimes great moves may not work. And sometimes bad moves work. Goes both ways. This is a sound managerial move by Buck Showalter. Never did I think he was asking Edwin for six outs. If they had an off day tomorrow, the Mets have an off day Thursday. They got three games in San Diego. But if they had an off day tomorrow, I could see that being a scenario where you ask him to get six outs for this reason. He hadn't pitched in a few days, plus you have an off day. But because they've got a series that begins in earnest tomorrow night in San Diego, or tonight in San Diego, depending on when you're listening, he was never asking him to get six outs. This was simply a, go get me three outs, and I'll go worry about the ninth inning later. And Edwin Diaz gets those three outs. Bing, bing, bing. One, two, three. Now let's get to Seth Lugo. I mean, look, I shrug my shoulders because Seth Lugo in a lot of ways is so frustrating because there are times you look at Seth and you say, that's a top reliever. You think of the Seth Lugo from a few years ago. Right out of the gate, he gives up the home run to Will Smith. I'm already panicking. Even after he gets the next two outs, there's still like an uneasiness of, yeah, there's two outs and nobody on, but we've seen this before. Go back to the game against the Giants. They had two outs and nobody on after the double, double play, up a run, and they quickly blew it. Eighth inning two, they were up by three with two outs and nobody on. Bing, bing, Jock Peterson, three-run home run. So two outs and nobody on is not a safe place if you're a New York Met fan. And when Chris Taylor hits that foul ball home run, that made my uneasiness through the roof. And I'm in a very tough spot. Personally, I was at my parents' house with my sons and my wife. They live about two hours north of where I live. And my dad is behind on the game. So I can't react to what's going on because my dad's two innings earlier. Because I, it's a long story. He was doing something with the kids, some things with the kids, which is beautiful grandpa stuff. And I'm like, you hang out with the kids. I'm going to watch this Met game right now. No big deal. So he started a little bit late. So as Seth Lugo's giving up a foul home run to Chris Taylor and I'm having a coronary and my wife's like, calm down. It's okay. I really can't even show that emotion. But I felt bad after he gave up that foul ball home run, which I don't even know why they reviewed, but whatever. You got to make sure you get it right. Gives up the double to Taylor. Boom, Gavin Lux RBI single. But to Seth Lugo's credit, I always say this, and I really believe this. When you blow a game, don't blow it completely. And what I mean by that is go get the third out. The game's not over. As much as we think the Mets are going to lose, as much as it's like, oh, God, we know how this is going to end. Give yourself a shot. And look, he got lucky because Gavin Lux hit the ball real hard at Starling Marte. But he was able to at least get out of it without a full-fledged implosion. And I even feel more that way because of the extra inning rule. Because right out of the gate, you got a runner on second and nobody out. So at least there's that feeling of, wow, I could take a quick lead. And boy, did they ever. J.D. Davis with that line drive that ate up Chris Taylor. But whatever, they scored a run. Great. There's a runner on second and nobody out. They better score a run. Adonis Medina. Adonis Medina. Against Mookie Betts? Adonis Medina against Freddie Freeman? 
Adonis Medina against, oh, Trey Turner. Oh, wait, no, give him first base. It's catcher's interference. Why would you even argue that if you're Dave Roberts? Trey Turner is my, I don't want to say he's my best hitter. He's one of my best hitters, right? He's clearly better than Will Smith, and he's better than even Justin Turner's at 225 this season. Like, if they call catcher's interference, fine, take your base. Turner's obviously an automatic steal of second. Totally get that. Will Smith gets a single. Boom, Dodgers can win the game. But I wouldn't go out of my way to take the bat out of my best hitter's hands. So the challenge of catcher's interference was a little odd. Even though it was, clearly was, at least based on the way I understand catcher's interference, it was. His bat hit the glove. Boom. I wouldn't have been in a rush to do that if I'm Dave Roberts. Because as a Met fan, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Even though Will Smith can end the game with one hit, I feel better facing Will Smith than I faced facing Trey Turner. And Adonis Medina showed balls. Did he not? This is how you have a special season. When you have guys like Adonis Medina, guys like Nick Plummer, guys like Steven Nagosik, guys like Colin Holderman, guys like Patrick Mazika come up in big spots and big moments and make plays that help you win a baseball game. Adonis Medina helped them win a baseball game. You have a runner on second and nobody out, and you're facing the top of the best offense in Major League Baseball, and you didn't even sweat, and you got through it? And the only base runner you put on was because of a catcher's interference? That was a remarkable effort by Adonis Medina. And that's why this was one of those four-game splits that you look at and say, that's a win. That's not a split. That's not a tie. That's a win. And that's not me bringing up, well, there's no Max Scherzer and there's no Jacob DeGrom, because that's irrelevant. Again, this is not about October. This is not about, let's send the message to the L.A. Dodgers. There's no message to the L.A. Dodgers. When the Mets play the Dodgers, if the Mets play the Dodgers, in the postseason, at some point, whatever round it is, this series in June will mean nothing. I want to make that clear. Whether the Mets got swept, whether the Mets swept the Dodgers, whether it's the split that we just witnessed. Why this matters, why this was important, is because the Atlanta Braves have awoken. Because the Philadelphia Phillies just needed to fire Joe Girardi and play the Anaheim Angels to win a bunch of games. This matters because it's a 10-game road trip against some quality teams, and they started 2-2. Two and two. That's why it matters. It's not because it's the Dodgers. It, re- it really isn't. That stuff is so overrated. Because also, and, and I'm not saying this in any kind of trash-talking way, let's say the Mets get where we want them to go. They win the division. And the Dodgers win their division. And they got the two best records in the National League. The Dodgers could lose in the divisional series. <laughs> now, so can we. But my point is, This is not about the future. This is just about winning games, cutting down that magic number, and winning the National League East. Because that's it. That's the goal right now. This has got to be a playoff team. Win the division, get a top two record in the National League, which means you have a first round bye. That's it. That's all that matters. Have I missed anything, Pete? Like have, I, have I touched on everything from these four games or is this stuff that I missed? I, I'm pretty sure you've touched on everything. I mean, my my biggest thing is uh, just going back to game three yes. with the whole white flag thing. Question to you is should there be more of a penalty to Dave Roberts and the Dodgers for trying to attempt that? Like th- there was no penalty and the, the game got delayed by 15 minutes and it felt like the only people that you know could potentially it, it could go bad for is the Mets. Like, yeah. so what? I don't know. I mean, like, it's not like the NFL or the NBA where when someone uses a challenge they don't have, you can say, all right, you lost a timeout, or there's a 10-yard penalty, or here's a couple of technical free throws. There's really not much you could do because I, I kind of understand what Buck was saying where if the penalty is the pitcher just has to throw eight warm-ups and go, you're actually risking the health of the other team. Because he goes out and drills somebody, we're all freaking out about it. So it's one of those things where you just hope people understand the rules and know the rules and this doesn't happen again. But I'm not sure what a fair penalty would be. Like, what would I mean, you how about penalize the, him with? 
How about the next inning? You get one less out. Come on. Because you're waving the no. white flag, aren't you? Isn't no. that the point? You're I waving can't. the white flag? It's too hokey. I can't do anything like that. I, I get what you're saying. I just, I'm not taking outs away or strikes away or anything like that. It's just, it is what it is. I mean, look, the penalty the Dodgers faced, and, and I can't draw a direct line to the Mets winning, is that Evan Phillips had to pitch. Because Evan Phillips came in and had a big role in the finale of this series, and Dave Roberts didn't let him start the seventh inning when maybe he would have started the seventh inning. And maybe the use of this bullpen is completely different. Maybe Bruzdar Garaderol faces completely different hitters in this game. So I, I know that's not a penalty because who knew that was going to happen? And Evan Phillips also could have gotten bombed. But it's just it's the, the real problem I had with the umpires being so confused about it. Because if the umpires just simply said immediately, you're not allowed to use this guy, go put someone else in, and didn't have to call New York City to find out, this thing wouldn't have been a delay. It would have been three minutes and that would have been it. Yeah, and then the, then the the bullpen coach coming out arguing with the umpire, like, what the hell was going on? It, well, was, get, it was getting a little outrageous after a while. That was smart on his part, because he's like, I'm just going to fight my way into giving my guys more time. Let's just figure it out. By the way, I said this to Pete before we started this. What are the five best wins of the season? And the reason I told him that is because in the moment when games occur, we're going to have this urge to say that was the best win of the year. That was a top five win of the year. That was one of the worst losses of the year. And sometimes we forget how great some of the wins were. And so I wrote down the other day, Five best wins of the year, five worst losses of the year. And there really aren't a lot of bad losses. I mean, it's amazing the losses I had to come up with because this hasn't been 2019 where there have been so many kick-of-the-ball losses. There have been so many great wins. So I went back after they won this game, and I said, okay, does this break the top five? Like, does a win like this beat the win in April against the Cardinals when they're down 2 nothing in the ninth inning with two outs? And it doesn't. The Cardinal win is still better. Does it beat... The win against the Phillies when they're down 7-1 in the ninth inning and they score seven runs and Starling Marte hits that game-winning double and they win 8-7. No, it doesn't pass that one. Does it pass the day after Scherzer gets hurt, they blow the lead on the Escobar error, and then Alonzo hits a walk-off home run? It does not. But it may beat the others. Like, it may go ahead against the Philly win from last week when Adovino gave up the home run to Castellanos, then Nick Plummer hit the game-tying home run, and Escobar won at the 10th. I think I'd put this win over the Dodgers in Game 4 above that. I think I'd put it above... Yeah, I think it makes top five. I think it's the fifth-best win of the season. I would still put it past the two St. Louis wins, and I'd put it behind the Philadelphia win. Uh, the no-hitter is a weird one because it was it was a great moment, but I'm not... You know, what, what was so... I don't want to say what was so special about it. It was a no-hitter, but it wasn't. The game wasn't truly in doubt. So I think this was a top-five victory. Top-five victory of the season was this finale against the Dodgers. You agree? I mean, I would definitely put that. I have that as a number three for me. I do, because I have the, 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 the Philly comeback, which was my number one of the season so far. I have the Pete Alonzo walk-off uh, versus St. Louis. I put this win as number three, and then I have the um, the Escobar walk-off as four, and then I have, dude, I don't know. I think Saturday's win was just as big, too. I put that in the top five because, that again, the first two games were so bad. The way they turned off, again, against Walker Bueller, I thought that kind of was showed that the Mets were for real, not to us, but to the national level. Yeah, look, I mean, it felt that way. It felt like they were headed towards a sweep down 4-1 to one in the second inning against Walker Bueller. Fair enough. But it was a great series split against the Dodgers. They got three games against the Padres coming up. It's not going to be easy. I saw Blake Snell, you Darvish coming up in this series against the Padres. Then the three games against the Angels where I hope the Angels win a game by the time the Mets play them. I don't want the Angels with a, you know, a 14-game losing streak or whatever by the time they get to that series. But great win. And so right now, they are still up eight and a half games against the Atlanta Braves. They've opened up a four-game lead on the Brewers because that's the lead over a top-two record in the National League, which is a huge freaking deal. I know this is weird, like we're trying to get used to the new format, but finishing with a top-two record in the league if you win your division is monumental. It means you don't play in this wild-card series. And because the Brewers have been tripped up and they've lost three in a row to where their lead in the Central is only down to a half game, the Mets have opened up a four-game lead 
on a top two record, which is a big deal. So great series split against the L.A. Dodgers. We'll be back after the series ends against the San Diego Padres. Uh, probably record it right after that game at about 1 o'clock in the morning because Pete and I don't sleep. And we have kids, but the kids usually keep us up. So we'll they give you a, another Rico Bronia edition of this podcast coming up on Wednesday after the game against the San Diego Padres. But great weekend. Let's keep it going, baby. And thank you for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>